0: Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Take a second to think about all the people you know. The friends, family, partners, coworkers, mentors, etc. Now think about all the people that they know. And then all the people that those people know. It all forms a bustling, complicated, interconnected web.
0: web. web. web
1: of Welcome back to Web of Women, the show that dives into the identities and relationships that form who we are as individuals and communities. I'm your host, Jenny Kaplan, and I'm the co founder and CEO of Wonder Media Network. If you're just tuning in, I'm starting this season off by talking to four women with whom I have different relationships. Last episode, I talked to one of my former colleagues, the former editor-in-chief of Businessweek, Megan Murphy. She told me about her career trajectory, her personal mission, and feeling radical in Washington. If you missed it, go back and check it out. This episode, I decided to talk to a brand new connection.
0: Hi, I'm Denora Gatacho. I'm the New York City Executive Director of Generation Citizen. Great. And where are you speaking from? I have the pleasure of speaking today from my home. So you get to see a little bit of what it's like to be DeNora Gatacho when she's not at the office. And my values still translate. I've got
1: that vote picture in the background. So that's what motivates me at home. So tell me a little bit more about what you do. Sure. What is Generation Citizen? What do you do there? How do, what kind of work do you do? Great. So I, as I said, I'm the New York City
0: Executive Director of Generation Citizen. We're a nine-year-old national nonprofit that's focused on educating and empowering young people to be civically engaged. We partner with middle and high schools here in New York City, but also in five other regions around the country to get a discipline we call action civics back in the classrooms. So it's really getting young people to be in the driver's seat of their understanding and experience with democracy. So, you know, not Schoolhouse Rock, with all due respect to that, right? I'm just a bill on Capitol Hill. We are so much more. We're really giving young people at the middle and high school level the civic knowledge and skills they need to participate in our 21st century democracy. So going beyond just rote memorization of random government facts to actually understanding how they can take action on issues that matter to them and their community by directly engaging with government. Our goal really is to have young people understand that democracy is a full context sport and that it's here for them, right? So if they want to make a change in their communities, uh, our action civics curriculum and pedagogy really gives them the tools, knowledge, and hopefully motivation to do so. Um, and so what does a New York City executive director do is the question, right? Um, sounds like a great title. And I'm I love saying it and writing it, but in reality, my job is to be the leader of our New York City programming. So we are, Generation Citizen is nine years old and our New York City region is about eight years old. And my job as the executive director here is to lead our programming here in New York City to make sure that we have a team of experienced professionals who are delivering high quality programming in the classroom and supporting teachers with doing that, but also to make sure that we have the revenue and the resources and the vision for how we're going to reinvigorate civics education here in New York City and increasingly New York State to ensure that young people leave our programming having uh, the knowledge and skills they need to be lifelong civic participants. That's
1: incredible. I want to rewind. Okay, we're rewinding. (laughs) And go to, tell me your story. Like, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Uh, Let's start early. We're going way back. Um, So... I'm a native New Yorker,
0: so that makes me a little bit of a unicorn right there. aren't many of us who've been here their entire lives. So I grew up, was born in the Bronx and grew up in Yonkers in the Bronx, moved to the city when I was in high school. I think it's interesting that I have both the perspective of being, having lived in the suburbs and then also really understanding what it means to grow up in a big urban center because that's kind of core to the work that I do now uh, at Generation Citizen. and really thinking about how do we get to those underserved young people who Grow up in communities where no one's talking about democracy and understands how democracy relates to them. I went to high school in Harlem, and while in high school, was pregnant in my senior year of high school and had a child who now is a full-fledged adult who just graduated from college last May. And I share that because it really grounds the work that I do at Generation Citizen of really thinking about my own civic experience. So when I was that young high school student in a high school in Harlem. I had my first civic engagement moment and I didn't, I wished that I had a generation citizen program in my school and that someone was actually teaching me how to find my voice and and advocate for change on issues that matter to me. But despite not having that, I was able to do so myself. And so I was able to advocate for myself to stay in my home school and graduate on time with my peers, despite being discouraged or encouraged to transfer to an alternative school for pregnant girls.
1: I didn't even really know that alternative schools for pregnant girls existed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Not many people do, but they do. And they're like they're called transfer schools. And it's, you
0: know, the theory behind them makes sense, right? It's really about providing an, an environment for students who are experiencing the same um, life circumstance or life event to be educated together and also to have childcare, right? Which for many young people can be a barrier to completing their academic studies. Um, but when I went to visit that transfer school for pregnant girls, I... Was then a student on the honor roll with good grades and, and achieving or excelling academically, and so my questions and my mom 's questions when we went to visit were grounded in is this going to be an academically rigorous environment or a nurturing environment for me and while it would be nurturing and there was childcare available, the rigor was missing, and so that really uh, inspired me motivated me to see if I could appeal a recommendation that I go to the school and stay in my home school with my peers, um, where there were more academically rigorous courses being offered, um, and obviously just a place that I was comfortable in. So launched my first advocacy campaign as a, a young adult, right? Now what I see our young people doing in the classrooms all the time, and we live in this moment where people understand they have a voice, um, I think not all of us tap into that in the same way.
1: What was your path from that point forward?
0: Great question. So I was able to graduate on time with my peers from that high school, went to college, uh, graduated actually a semester early from college. And I always knew, and I think many young people hear this either from their parents or hear it themselves of like, oh, well, you have good debate and reasoning and argument skills, so you should be a lawyer. And I was like, yeah, I should be a lawyer. Um, But I went to college as a young single mother at the start of the tech boom, right? So I was like, I need a job out of college. Like, what's the, the quickest career path, if you will, to that? And so for my first year in college, I really thought, I'm going to be a computer science major and took one too many uh, math courses and was like, wait, no, I remember you wanted to be a lawyer, Denora. you want to be a lawyer, back to the humanities. Um, And so I graduated with a degree in legal studies and really had a sense around the humanities and pursuing a career in the law. And after a year and a half off between college and, and law school, I went to law school at Fordham University here in New York City. And... You know, again, having been told always, oh, you you would be a great lawyer, it was a no-brainer to do that. The question was, what was I going to do with that legal degree, right? And so my career has taken a, I would say, non-traditional legal path in that regard of like what, you know, kind of being inside of government and in the nonprofit sector, practicing as a traditional lawyer, but also really dipping my toes and whole body into the policy and advocacy space as well. Um, and that is what motivates me, is like being able to, I call myself an advocate, right? I recently called myself, and if I were wearing a different sweater, it would be even clearer, but I recently called myself a democracy ninja. And like, <laughs> for me, what motivates me is just continuing to fight for a participatory and inclusive democracy for all Americans. And so, you know, how I've done that is has varied over the course of my 15 year plus career. Um, But right now it's through educating and empowering young people to be civically
1: engaged. I want a sweatshirt that says Democracy Ninja. Just throwing that out there. I think it's a great merch
0: idea. Exactly. (laughs) We should definitely do that. I don't have that sweater, but the sweater I had on when I coined that term was every day I'm hustling, which is like also, yeah. Works. What was
1: missing is for democracy, right? (laughs) So what do you think of as sort of your personal mission statement You know, someone recently, not recently, several
0: years ago, suggested I write a personal mission statement. And I didn't, initially, I was like, what does that even mean, right? My younger self was like, that sounds like something you'd ask someone to do in a philosophy course or some like sociology course. And so it took me a while to actually dig into what did that mean. And I started, you know, really writing down the bare bones of that around what issues motivate me, what keeps me passionate and engaged when I'm functioning at my best. And so I didn't get all the way there, gonna be honest. It's still a work in progress and hopefully a good mission statement is that. But I would say my mission is really the work I'm doing at Generation Citizen. Like, how do I fight for a more inclusive and participatory democracy? And how do I advocate that others understand what that means to then participate in that democracy? And so that, I think, is summed up with my democracy ninja phrase because I feel like it's all of those things. It's the advocacy, it's the doggedness, it's being persuasive and stealthy Um, and just continuing to be a warrior, if you will, for democracy.
1: You spoke about this a little bit when you talked about having the skills your whole life, where you were sort of like, oh, I should be a lawyer. But when you were little, when you were a kid, what did you want to be when you grew up?
0: Yeah, I did. I wanted to be a lawyer, right? Like For me, it was just like I, I thought then that it meant the only version of a lawyer that I had in my head was what you saw on TV, right? I didn't have any lawyers in my family. I didn't grow up with that perspective. And so I thought, oh, I have to be in court and I have to be in a suit and advocating on behalf of my clients, right? The only thing I was clear about throughout my entire career was that I, w- I couldn't be a criminal lawyer because I, I have a strong fear against jail and prison. But if I meant advocating for people who are in prison. I, while I'm not opposed to doing it, it's like the, the fear of going to the prison to visit them. I didn't know I could overcome that, but it was always about being an advocate, right? And so to me... Was thinking about how to connect the dots on the, the law um, and how that you, you can advocate for justice for others, you know, on any number of issues.
1: And when you think about now, what do you want to be when you grow up? Now, ah, <laughs> uh, um, I still
0: want to. I still want to be that advocate, right, for democracy. And I think the great thing is, and I was saying this to a young woman who I was talking to earlier today, is. A legal degree, I still believe, is one of the best degrees one can have because it is a set of skills. It is a toolbox, if you will, of argumentation, persuasive and written oral uh, communication skills, but also the ability to reason and analyze that is invaluable and can be used and applied in any number of settings. And so I think I will continue to draw upon that legal degree to advocate for those who I think need a voice in our democracy. Um, The majority of my career, I spent my time thinking about the structural barriers to participation, right? So how do we make our democracy more responsive to the needs of everyday Americans and making it accessible through things like early voting and automatic voter registration and campaign finance reform? But the work I'm doing now is also the other side of that coin, right? Like, how do we get people to understand that even if those roadblocks don't exist, right? New York took a great step forward at the start of the legislative session when it passed laws to modernize some of our voting laws here. If all of those things were true, right, if we could have people automatically registered to vote and there were early voting and people understood why it mattered, would they actually participate? And so I'm excited about the work I'm doing now because I think it allows me to keep pushing for people to understand how democracy matters and how they can participate. You know, going forward, some of the things that I think would are related to that are thinking about how I can be an influencer within side of government, you know, as an, a policymaker or, or elected official who can be pushing from the inside for uh, more changes to make our democracy inclusive and participatory.
1: Why do you think it is that you've had this drive throughout your life for wanting to advocate for other people? What do you think led to that? You know, it, it took me a while to actually to document that or actually be
0: able to articulate that. I think it's because I grew up in an environment where my parents, you know, created space for me to vocalize, to understand what was happening around me, right? So I didn't live in a home where we couldn't talk about politics. We didn't talk about current events. Like, my parents were very clear about that and transparent and wanted to have that open dialogue with me as early as I can remember in my in my childhood but they also pushed me to think about solutions right so even to this day you know I'll call my mom up to complain about something and she's like great and then what are you going to do about it right and so it was this notion of feeling like you had to take the next step between identifying problems and proposing solutions right and so I think that's what resonates with me not to to sound like a broken record, but what resonates with me about Generation Citizen and the work that I do there is like our tagline is don't talk about change, lead it, right? Like, And I feel like I've always been the person who can recognize a problem and then say, now what do we do, right? Like let's be solutions oriented. And so it's that is kind of grounded in me, this sense of both having power and then what do you do with that power? And obviously power is a spectrum and it's relative, right? So people from underserved communities don't always have power. And I think the important thing for us all to know is that we do have some power, even if we don't perceive it that way. And then what what are we willing to do with that power in order to help our own cause and the cause of others whose interests are aligned with ours or might be different than ours?
1: I know it's quite broad, but how do politics affect your life? Mm. How do you feel
0: like politics
1: affect your life? Yeah,
0: it, it it definitely has affected my life, I would say, at every turn, right? Like and it's not just, no one's going to say like, oh, I'm an elected official and I affect your life, right? Like, But when you think about how decisions are made and the consequence of them on your daily life, politics is always in the background, whether you view it that way or not. And so, you know, politics affected my life when I was a young teenager and someone was saying to me that the policy that's in place is that pregnant girls go to school somewhere else because they're a distraction to a general school population, right? So and really thinking about who are the influencers and decision makers who could reverse that and who could... Allow me to remain in my home school with my peers. Um, politics is at play in <laughs> when I take my kids to the school and the subway is moving slow, right? And I have to teach them or who the decision makers are who control the MTA, even if there's finger pointing about that. Um, I, I think what is important is for us to remember that politics isn't this thing that's off over there, right? Especially when we think about it at the federal level. Most of us don't live in Washington, D.C. or the surrounding area, but yet the decisions made there impact our lives and the decisions that are made in our local communities affect our daily lives every day, right? Like whether there should be cars driving in Times Square, you know, what incentives are there to ensure that there's a thriving Broadway district, et cetera, are all relevant to the lives we lead. And it's a question of what issues matter to us and what do we think we can do to impact them? And so, you know, for me, once I learned that early on, it was always about what could I be doing? What levers could I be pulling to influence policy and politics?
1: How do your political views and your drive for political change, how does that relate to your family's views, your family's Mm. political tendencies? Great question. I would say political engagement
0: and, and politics is a spectrum of activity, right? And I would say I'm probably at the most engaged end of that, right? And so, and depending upon which family member I'm talking about, they're somewhere along that spectrum. In my like kind of core household with my husband and my three children we 're all very politically engaged in the way that 's most relevant to our lives, right So for my six and eight year old daughters for them it 's like understanding their community and how can they make it better, how can they you know within even this household be <laughs> influencers in how we decide what we do that relates to their life uh, for our 22 year old I think hopefully my husband and I have done a good job in instilling in him that he has to be politically and civically engaged, and so he does that work um, and did it when he was in college. And then my husband and I both are very civically and politically engaged. So fortunately, I'm in the right household. We all align values in that regard. We all are the family that goes to vote together um, in every election that we can. And hopefully longer term, I'll see that I've shaped young people and my daughters who share those same political values and and orientation.
1: To me, it feels like the more we can talk about it regularly, and it doesn't seem like this foreign thing, the better off we can actually make policy. That's absolutely right, right? So demystifying. And I think that's
0: why... um, but that's the challenge, right? So when I, if I were to telescope out from my nuclear family and the people who live in this house, yeah, my mother and my father, who's now deceased, were definitely, I had those same conversations around the dinner table, and that's what motivated me to be the person I am today. But then I, I have siblings who are not as politically engaged, right, and so I think it's a question of, do we understand how it relates to us? And, right, if it's not personal, if it's, you don't have the connection to it, often it's just the noise that's over here, right? And so we have to, we have to make sure we drill that down and, like, make politics accessible, Um, To all of us, because we don't all have to be at the most engaged end of the spectrum, but you do have to understand how it relates to you and plug in where it makes sense. And I think that's why Generation Citizens Work is so vital, because I think generations of Americans don't actually understand how it relates to their daily lives. And so they're like, oh, politics is that thing over there. And maybe I'll show up and vote, which is great, but I'm not going to really do anything else, right? And so I think about our history as a country, right? We broke free of a monarchy because we didn't want to have any other um, country be sovereign over us. And yet, Many Americans treat our democracy as if it still is a monarchy, right? So we like go off and coronate our elected officials and we're like, bye, see you the next time I have to vote for you. But we don't do any of the work in the intervening period to hold our elected officials accountable and make sure they hear from us about the issues we care about. We all care about things, right? We all have issues that matter to us and our families. But if we don't understand how politics relate to our daily lives, we're not going to take that next step. And no one's going to, because the electoral districts are so large, it's not like an elected officials calling your house every day saying like, hey, Denora. You must care about something. Tell me what that is, right? The onus is on us as the constituent, as the individual, to do the reverse. It's important to be connecting those dots for sure.
1: How do you do that yourself? I feel like it's such a an important thing to do, but also feels quite difficult (laughs) to really take that step and get involved. And
0: overwhelming, right? Because especially in a city like New York, there's just so many ways for which you can get involved. You could spin yourself out of control. (laughs) So, note to self be strategic, (laughs) plug into the things that feel authentic. Um, I think the first step is actually grounding in what matters to you, right? What are the issues you care about and where do you think your skills and interests can make a difference? And then figuring out how to use that to plug into the various ways to be civically engaged. So um, Generation Citizen has a a toolkit that we call Go Beyond the Ballot because it is really not just about that notion and that act of voting, as we do every so often every year. It's really about the day-to-day action. So simple things like you care about education issues, show up at a city council hearing and talk about them. You care about policing issues, show up at a precinct council meeting and make sure that people understand that you care about those issues and you want to make a difference or advocate for differences in policy. Um, It's got to be grounded in the individual and what matters to you in all honesty. Do you remember your first voting experience? I do remember. I was actually talking about this at dinner with my son the other day and it's kind of... Interesting in this moment, when you think about um, how complicated our democracy is, um, so my first voting experience was the uh, two thousand election presidential election, and I was living in Brooklyn at the time because I care about democracy so much. I had registered to vote in advance and thought I did all the right things, checked all the boxes, et cetera. and then I went to go vote. I show up at the poll site, and it said you aren 't on the rolls to vote here." and I was like, "What do you mean it 's a cold winter day of course i 'm on the rolls to vote here." but according to them, I wasn't. And so they directed me to go to another poll site. And I do that. And I get to that poll site and they say, you're not on the rolls to vote here either. You should be at this other poll site. So this is now the third poll site. I go to that poll site and they're like, I have no idea who sent you there. Mind you, it's a cold November day, right? We live in New York. It's winter. They're like, you need to go back to the, that first poll site. You definitely should be registered to vote there. And so I go back and realize, they say, like, you're still not on the rolls here. So you can fill out this provisional ballot. And I knew enough then that a provisional ballot is not the same as a, you know, obviously I wasn't trained in election law just yet, but knew that that wasn't the same as voting a traditional ballot. But I still filled it out because I knew that I wanted my voice to be heard and that voting was one way to do that. But imagine if you didn't have that conviction, right? Imagine if you go to the first poll site and you're like, well, then I try, right? Throw your hands up, move on. Democracy sucks. I'm out of here, especially as a young adult. That is going to be a formidable experience in the trajectory of your democracy, experience or engagement. And for me, I wasn't daunted by it. In fact, I feel like it probably fueled me to do the work that I did after that, unbeknownst to me, but makes sense now. But for many, that can be the turnoff, right? And can be a disincentive for staying engaged. And so, but then I think about it, right? And I still have those moments where I'll show up at a poll site, for example, and something goes wrong. And I, I always think about the fact that democracy is not many people's number one issue, right? What their number one issue is, is like education, affordable housing, economic development, taking care of their family, If democracy is not your number one issue, then the fact that you don't have a good experience on election day is just one of the list of things that you don't, you know, that that went wrong that day. But no one's ever gonna, many people are not gonna get up the next day and wanna keep doing something about democracy. They're just gonna say, our voting system sucks, right? And they're gonna move on. So either they go vote the next time they're, they have an opportunity or they don't. And I think that's the problem is that we lose people because we don't understand that democracy is the, the vehicle through which we can fix the issues we care about as our number one issue
1: hi jenny hi shira how's it going ah you know just a crazy busy day here in dc well it's lovely to talk to you here from new york it's weird not to be in the same place totally weird but thank god we have skype am i right for people listening who don't know, Shira is my co-founder and the chief marketing officer of Wonder Media Network. Shira, as you know, this season of Web of Women is sponsored exclusively by Skype, which is a Microsoft product. How has Skype changed the way that you work? Well, we're talking right now, which is great. I'd love to see your face at the end of such a packed day. So I just feel like optimized for better debrief sessions, Skype has just made everything feel a little bit easier and a little bit friendlier. Skype is software that enables the world's conversations. Millions of people and businesses use Skype to make free video and audio calls, whether they're one-on-one or for groups. You can also send instant messages and share files. Special thanks to Skype for sponsoring this season. I should also note that while Skype enables conversations like the episode you're listening to right now, that doesn't necessarily mean that Skype as a company agrees with what's being said. Those opinions all belong to the people who are speaking them. So let's get back to the episode. Bye, Jenny. Bye, Shira. Who do you consider, what do you consider your, to be your community and however you take that word? (laughs)
0: Yeah, it's a broad word. Right. I think. And, and I have I think many overlapping communities when I think about it, at the most granular level, my community is are the people who live in my neighborhood, who I see when I go to my community board meetings. Right. I used to serve on the community board as vice chair for five years. But I also think my community are the people who share my interests and my values, who are aligned and you know pushing for government to do better. The, my community is also the women I volunteer with at the New York Junior League. Right. Where I'm going to serve on the board there. My community is, uh, you know, mothers who um, I spend my time with on weekends through Jack and Jill for America, right, and the work that we're doing there to um, both teach our young African American children about their history, but also ground them in the importance of service to their community. My communities are my friends and women I volunteer with through the the Links Incorporated and African American women who are sharing our story and and being of service to our community. It really just depends, right? I think I have several webs of community. Um, And that's probably because I'm very civic-minded and very community-focused and I want to stay engaged. It just depends on what it is I'm seeking out of community in that moment. It it changes depending on what it is I'm thinking about in that moment and what it is I need personally, right? So sometimes you seek out a community because you're missing something or you want to fill in a gap or, or you just need the extra support of a certain group of people. And sometimes the community finds itself organically.
1: When I think back to growing up, and maybe my parents would disagree, but community felt much more tied to a location, tied to like geography, than I think of it being tied now in my life. No, and, I,
0: and well, what we struggle with in this moment, I think, is this inter the sense of an intergenerational community, right? And are our, our interests aligned? So I, there's a lot of talker bound you know, the role that millennials play in our society versus, you know, the boomers and then the, you know, the small Gen Xers, where do we fit in? What do the Zs think? And and instead of talking about, like, what does it mean to be an American, right? And what does it mean to for us all to have shared interests and values or not? And what is that doing to our sense of community? I think, yeah, as we have evolved over time and now are more focused on using data to, to catalog and group people, it in some respects to me seems to break down that what might have been an older definition of community that was more inclusive.
1: I also think that it used to be much more common to associate community with religious affiliation. What's your relationship to religion? Is it a part of your life? Did you grow up religious? Has it been a part of your life? How does that fit in when you think about your personal identity and also community? Mm -hmm.
0: No, that's a great question. So I definitely grew up as a person of faith and I still believe still, you know, define myself as a person of faith. And that is another community. I think it is not at the top of my list, not because I don't value it as much, but I think faith for me as I've gotten older has become much more of a personal relationship with uh, myself and faith. And it's not about, you know, I think when we're younger, faith, the role that faith plays in our lives is largely driven by our parents. (laughs) Um, And as you get older, you have to identify that and find its place in your life for yourself. And so uh, while it is a community for me, it is not It is not the one that kind of leads um, every day.
1: Have you ever felt radical?
0: (laughs) You mean a democracy ninja? Isn't that radical? I feel like that's radical.
1: (laughs) I feel like we should all strive to be democracy ninjas.
0: Yeah, I just, I don't even, I gotta like, I feel like I should put together a whole video for this. Like I've got to figure out like my democracy ninja persona. Um, Yes, I do feel radical. And I feel like every day I say something radical at work that is, you know, off the charts a little bit. And I get some eyebrow raises and quizzical looks from my colleagues, and they're like, "Bring it down, radical girl." Um, but I think it's the radical thought, right? All of us have that in us. It, it, it's when we manifested. When do we give it life? How far do we let those radical ideas go? But without the radical, we don't push social norms, right? So I guess that's it's also a relative term. But I do, yes, I do find myself to be radical. I, I think within reason. I, I also am strategic, and I want to make sure that my radical ideas can actually be effectuated and not just be radical ideas. So I try to temper that and sort of those around me to be like, okay, girl, too radical, break it down.
1: Do you have any examples of when you've been radical and it maybe has come to fruition or it's pushed the ball forward? Mm. It never feels as rad. Like if I'm going to give an example, it's not going to feel radical in this
0: moment, I feel like, right? Because it's all relative. But even thinking about, I'll give an example from Generation Citizen, we've been talking a lot about young women of color and what it means for them to be seen as civic leaders and participants, right? And this last election cycle was an embodiment of that. There were so many women of color who ran for office, saw themselves as leaders and took many of them took their seat at the table. And we see that in our classrooms at the most, you know, grassroots level. One of my radical ideas was like, how do we get the philanthropic community to invest in young women of color as civic leaders, right? And it's not radical in and of itself, but like, who knew if that would actually be Salient and, and something that people would want to support, and we put together an idea to do that based on data from our programming. And it's I said said it somewhat radically at work, like, "Oh, great! Now I get to bring my whole self to work every day as a woman of color to think about how to support the civic leadership of other people who look like me." And that that's radical. And now it's happening, right? Thanks to funding uh, we've received from the New York Commons Foundation. So maybe it's not that radical, but it, it you know I I would say ten years ago, maybe even five years ago, that wasn't what people were talking about. So.
1: So we've talked a lot about politics. We've talked about religion a little bit. I want to talk about gender. When was the first time that you felt aware of gender?
0: Mm, I don't, That's a good one.
1: I don't know. I mean, it's not like anybody ever
0: said to me, and I think this is a very different time, like, oh, you're a young lady and this is, and you're different or society will perceive you differently. Uh, yeah, that's a hard question. I don't know. I think I would say, if I, if I could say, kind of point to a moment, it would be that same moment back in high school when I knew I was a girl and that the rules were different, like as a pregnant teen for me, than they would have been for other students.
1: How do you think that gender has affected your path or your career? You know, I still believe that even
0: in this moment of heightened awareness about the role of women as leaders um, and about their potential for leadership, that it is still so much harder to be a woman, right? And it's even harder to be a woman of color. Because the perception is that, you know, there are certain behaviors, norms, expectations of women generally that society hasn't fully broken down the barriers on and that we are still pushing to be able to have that full, equitable seat at the table. Um, and so I feel that even as a leader of color in an organization that is working towards being more equitable, but isn't all the way there, right? And I, and I don't mean that in a, as an insult. I think it's all of us in this moment, be it from our schools to our churches to our communities, if you will, are all struggling with what does it mean to be equitable and making sure we're giving people space at the table. I think in this moment, I feel like I am a black woman more than I probably have ever felt it. But I also feel so much more comfortable in wearing that badge and and fighting for equity for myself and and my daughters and other black women.
1: How do you feel like that's evolved? How do you feel like your desire to wear that badge has evolved over your career Mm. and your life? I think I didn't know, right? Like
0: I didn't I'm sorry, I intuitively knew that it was something, a badge that I had to wear. I just didn't have the knowledge, the capacity, the leadership voice to be able to wear that badge authentically or as unabashedly as I do now.
1: I think storytelling is the language of empathy. And so I'm interested from you, what is your favorite piece or one of your favorite pieces of storytelling or content, whether it's a movie or book or tweet or whatever, I'm
0: a big believer in storytelling. I think, I don't know that I have one to point to, right? I think it's it's both my own lived experience that is what shapes what I do, but it is also the story of those around us that shapes what we do, right? I think in this moment, I'm so moved by the story of Shirley Chisholm and her historic run for the presidency, right? And us really thinking about that 50 years later and looking at Senator Kamala Harris and what it took in those 50 years for Black women for women generally to see themselves as candidates for elective office, right, and to be leaders and be seen and respected and acknowledged by, I don't know, mainstream America, um, and how much that has evolved over time. And I'm excited about, I will say honestly, somewhat nervous about what it's going to look like this time around, right, and how does that how does that play out? Um, I think last year I was very involved and very supportive of Stacey Abrams' historic run to be the first. African-American woman governor in America, um, representing the great state of, of Georgia. And even though that didn't come to fruition, what was inspiring to me about that is that she boldly stepped into that space of leadership and articulated her vision for Georgians and all women nationwide. And it was both inspiring to see how that unfolded, but also made clear to me that there was so much more that needs to be done to make sure that women of color are viewed respectfully by Americans. Are we the democracy? Are we the society? Are we the country that we actually espouse to be um, in our written values, you know, as embodied in the law and constitution, et cetera?
1: Yeah. In some ways, it's like how far we've come and yet also how far there is left to go. Yeah. <laughs> in yeah. those examples, it's sort of like it is amazing to look back, but it's also depressing. Uh uh-huh. hmm Yeah.
0: And I think it's OK for it to be depressing if it continues to improve through each iteration, um, because that's what's going to hopefully motivate and inspire others to say, OK, I saw how far the ball was moved or this, how many cracks were in the ceiling. And then what do I do next? I just hope that it isn't demoralizing, especially as we think about younger generations of Americans who are in amazing ways less patient, right, um, with getting to that that more perfect union and pushing for change. And so, you know, it's important to, to me, at least, as someone who follows stories and thinks about history, to understand how to connect the dots and see how things evolve over time um, and to teach others the same, right? That, yes, systemic change can be catalyzed through social media and through the availability of technology, but systemic change still takes time. And so being mindful of pushing and continuing to fight for the change you want to see happen and not just thinking it happens kind of in the blink of an eye
1: thank you for listening to this episode of web of women this was the last episode of the first link in each interview chain the month of march is all about that next connection next week my friend sosi bacon from episode one is interviewing her mom kira sedgwick i'm sosi bacon and i'm talking to my mom Curious (laughs) Curious <laughs> graduate. Let's see, what's our title? So I'm an actress and producer. You are, mom? A mutter. <laughs> a mutter. I'm, um, I'm
0: an actor and a director and a producer.
1: Then in April, it'll be all about the step beyond. So Kira will interview someone from her web of connections. For the next link into Nora's chain, she gets to pick someone who she wants to interview from her life.
0: Who do you want to interview next? Great question. I'm really excited to interview Glenda Carr from Higher Heights for America so that she can talk about some of the things that I've highlighted in this conversation of how do we elevate the voice of Black women in leadership
1: and elected office. Stay tuned for episode eight, to hear their conversation about politics, gender, religion, and identity. I'm so excited to test out this new kind of podcast with you. If you have any questions or feedback, or if you want to start your own web, email me at web at wondermedianetwork.com. You can also find us on Instagram at WMN.media and on Twitter at WMNmedia. This episode was produced by me, Jenny Kaplan, with help from Allie Lindenberg, Shira Atkins, and Ben Brewer. A huge thanks to Overcoats for the music, and to the women of the web for making this show possible. Talk to you next week.